Father, help us to rest in you and to wait on you as we look into your word now. We need to hear from you. And I pray that you would just guide us through this process this morning as we come to your word in a way that accomplishes your purposes in our lives and lifts up your name in this place. I pray that you would, you would teach me through this time, that you would teach us through this time. I pray that you would guard us from anything that would distract us from you and anything that's said here that doesn't point to you, would you just make that disappear? Help us to hear what you have to say and what you want to speak into our hearts, our homes, and into our ministry here at Harrow Baptist. Father, we surrender this time to you, looking forward to what you'll do among us. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Max Sherman is an American scientist and doing a lot of research together with his Canadian partner, Ian Walker. And their field of study is efficiency, energy efficiency, energy efficiency in buildings such as homes as well as commercial buildings. And they were examining in a long-term study the effectiveness of various sealants for heating and air conditioning ducts. And he came up with a startling conclusion after the end of this study. And the startling conclusion was this. Well, first of all, it was reported on the internet. And when his research was released on the internet, it was quickly picked up by the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, USA Today, CBS, Time Magazine, The Times of London, The New York Times, The CBC, Home Energy Magazine, and Better Homes and Gardens Magazine. This was big news and people jumped on it and covered it right away. His news at the end of his study was simply this. Most of the duct sealants on the market today work well with one notable exception. That exception? Duct tape. Duct tape. In just a few days after its application, he reports, duct tape failed reliably and often catastrophically. So people would bring in companies to say, why, why is my furnace, why is my air conditioner not working as well as it should? And they would replace these units and spend all this money. And in a lot of cases, the issue was not with the unit itself. It was with all the air escaping because people were using duct tape. And it is not efficient for that. In some of his interviews, a few of his interviews with the press included these exchanges. Mr. Sherman then how in the world did duct tape get its name? He replied, I don't know. <laughs> Mr. Sherman, what can you use duct tape for? Well, anything but ducts. <laughs> Mr. Sherman, do you personally use duct tape? He said, absolutely, I use duct tape all the time. Just never on ducts. I remember a few years ago receiving a duct tape wallet. You remember that? That a few years ago, people were making all kinds of things out of duct tape. Wallets and purses and all kinds of things. And at first you think, that's not what this is for. Well, in hindsight, maybe it is. Anything but ducts. You see, the tape was not useful for what it was designed to do. What it was named for. What it was marketed and advertised to do, it was just not effective to do it. 
People assumed that it would do that because of its name and the way it was promoted. They would hear the title and they would assume this is what I need for the job. Clearly, we need to watch and listen more carefully to advertising and to what we're buying into. Well, it doesn't just work that way for building materials. It works that way in the church as well. There are times in the church where someone says, this person or these people, they would be good for leading in the church. They would be good for teaching and for, for leadership positions. They, they look like leaders. They call themselves and promote themselves as leaders or teachers. But not so much. This program would be fantastic for the church. This would keep us right on track. This would be great. It would keep us busy and active. It'll be great. We should try this program in the church. The problem is it doesn't keep us on target with what we're here to do, making it a distraction. And like duct tape, the wrong people and the wrong programs in the hands of the church will fail reliably and often catastrophically. And that's not just true in our day. In the churches on the island of Crete in the first century, that's exactly what was going on. The church was slipping into a state of chaos and confusion. They were listening to the wrong voices. They were following after anyone in the church who promoted themselves as a teacher or leader and people would just fall into line and listen to what they say and follow their agenda. As a result, as a result, they were straying from God's call on their lives and God's call on the church in terms of its ministry. They were just following along blindly, unrolling the duct tape as they went and assuming everything was okay. And it was creating a huge problem. So the Apostle Paul, he went to Crete. And he spent some time there with these churches. And he started the process of trying to undo that damage and trying to set the course straight. And when it was time for him to move on, there was still so much left to do that he left Titus, a young man, a younger man. He had led Titus to the Lord. He had discipled him. He had trained him for ministry. Titus had traveled with Paul for a a long time as a fellow missionary and, and worker together. And as Paul left Crete, he left Titus behind and said, Titus, you need to continue to straighten out this mess, set the agenda, set the direction straight, and make sure the church gets on track with where God wants it to go. And so he left Titus there to do just that. Shortly after he left, he wrote Titus a short letter. And he writes this letter. This is probably the second last letter that Paul would write. And he he writes Titus this letter. And we're going to spend, including today, the next three Sundays, just walking through, walking through what Paul had to say to Titus about the purpose of the church, the purpose of ministry, the purpose of us, ourselves, individually, even walking with the Lord. What's that all about? What's that all about? So as you turn to Titus chapter 1 this morning in preparation for our study here, let me just fill in a little bit more background. Why did Paul write this letter to Titus? Well, he was preparing Titus for mature ministry in a difficult place. Crete was not an easy place to serve in the church. He was preparing Titus for mature ministry in a difficult place. He was looking to equip Titus for discipling ministry 
with divided and distracted people. He was trying to encourage Titus, his son in the faith, this younger man whom he trained. He's trying to encourage Titus as he faces the pressures of the task he'd been given. And at the same time, while doing all of this and instructing Titus, this letter serves to also instruct the elders in those churches and those church families themselves as they hear this information and they see what the point is and what they're supposed to be doing. And Paul, in writing this to Titus, lends his authority to the leadership of Titus in those places amongst those churches and leaders. And so we begin the letter of Titus in the most natural place, and that's right at the start. So let's jump in. Let's jump in. What is the ministry of the church? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul gives this, this introduction to, Timothy, to Titus, rather, he lays out who, who he is, what his mission is, and therefore what the mission of Titus is. Because the church only has one Lord, one head. That means the church only has one mission, one agenda. And so whether it was Paul's mission, Paul's mission or the mission of Titus, or the mission of the churches on Crete, or the mission of the church in Harrow, it's the same. One Lord, one purpose for the church. And so Paul lines this out for us. He says, I'm a servant of God. He doesn't say a servant of Christ. Most letters he says, I'm a servant of Christ. Here he says he's a servant of God. We'll see later that there were people on Crete in these churches that were trying to draw people into a Jewish religion instead of a Christian faith. And they were trying to draw people back. And Paul, by using God's name, this may be showing them, no, I am a servant of God, and you need to follow his agenda. So I'm a servant of God. I'm also an apostle of Jesus, he says. An apostle is a hand-picked, specifically sent messenger, an ambassador from someone in authority who speaks with the authority of the person sent. You and I are not apostles. We're ambassadors for Christ, and we take his message, but we're not specifically apostles. Paul was. And so Paul, speaking from this position of serving God and serving Christ, being sent in his name with his message, he says, here is the mission of the church. Here's my mission. Here's yours, Titus. I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That people whom God has called might hear the gospel and respond. I am here, I exist, you are here, you exist, we are here, we exist to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not responsible for the responses we receive, the results of that activity, but we are responsible to be faithful in declaring the truth of forgiveness and life are only found in the name of Jesus Christ. 
That's what we are responsible for. And Paul said, this is where the mission starts, sharing the gospel faithfully. I'm in this position for the sake of the faith of God's elect and for their knowledge of the truth which, which accords with godliness. Telling people the gospel, seeing people surrender their hearts and lives to Jesus, the Christ, the only hope for forgiveness in life, is not the end of the process where we just walk away and leave them hanging now. It is just the start. You see, the truth leads us through salvation to godliness, to holiness, to sanctification, to a life of walking in God's ways as His people, as we carry His name through this community, to this life of living in the righteousness in which we now stand as followers of Christ. And so Paul says the mission is to share the gospel for the sake of the faith of God's elect, to make disciples, to teach people what it means to walk in God's ways according to His Word, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, and to do it all linked into the hope of eternal life. Understanding that whether you are lost and outside of Christ and not yet a follower of Jesus, or whether you have been forgiven of your sin, you now stand in the righteousness of Christ, you are His follower, a child of God, either way, Your eyes must not be set here, but on eternity, on somewhere else. I have someone in in my life that I'm connected to, one of my relatives, who is constantly focused on the past, collecting all kinds of nostalgic things from the past. That's where their focus is. That's where their attention is. And I said to them once, I said, I think I know why you're looking back so much. They said, why? Because the only joy and hope you have in life is in memories you have of the past. You refuse to deal with God and prepare for the future and therefore have a glorious future to which you look forward. And instead, you refuse to look at that and so you turn your back on it and the only direction you're looking is backwards. You see, our focus is to be on home and on the hope of eternal life. And so we need to hold out the gospel to those who are outside of Christ and say it's not about here and now. To live your life from, for here and now is to totally miss the point. And we need to encourage God's people to not get so rooted here and now, so focused on the here and now that we miss the point. Our heart and our eyes are to be set on home. And when they are, it changes the way we view everything. And so that's the ministry of the church, the mission of the church, the mission of Paul, of Titus, of the churches in Crete, and of our ministry today in Harrow Baptist Church. It is simply to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel, and then teach people what it means to walk with God in obedience to His Word with our hearts set on eternity. That's the mission. And so it doesn't matter where or when you live, that's the mission of the church. That's the mission of followers of Christ, to make disciples of Jesus. So how does that look? What should they do? How should they go about that on the island of Crete? How should we do that now, so many centuries later, here in the town of Harrow? How do we do this? Well, that will be the thrust of the rest of this letter. We're going to take three weeks to unpack it a bit. But the first thing that 
Paul tells Titus, is that you first need to look at the men who make disciples of Jesus. So let's take a look at the men who make disciples of Jesus. We begin in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Wow. So Paul is telling Titus, you need to go and you need to appoint elders. That means that these churches probably had people in place in leadership. They did, in fact, have people in place in leadership. Titus was to go, and he was either to confirm those people as, yes, these are people who should be leaders here, or he was to remove them and put people in place who fit the bill for leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. He said, I left you that you might put what remained into order. You see, false teaching and disorder threatened the church. People were claiming to follow Christ, but their inconsistent living was creating confusion in the community because of the the poor living of church members. People were in the church and saying, well, I have faith, I don't need works. We've heard that from the book of James. Paul will address that throughout this letter. You will regularly hear the word good and good works throughout this book. Paul will address that issue. But he says, Titus, I'm leaving you here on Crete to put into order what remains. Put it into order. You know, that word putting into order there that that Paul uses is the same root word as our word orthodontist. (laughs) Realign. To set straight. Titus, go and take what is crooked, take what's out of place and out of shape and reform it. Adjust it. Set it straight. On top of that, you're also to appoint these elders. Now, elders is not a statement of someone's age. Being older, being older does not qualify you for leadership in the church. That's not what the job is. Leadership in the church is based on so much more than that. And so Paul unfolds that now from verses 6 to 8. Let's look at this. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, same word there being used interchangeably now with elder, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So the focus of these people, these men who are to be placed as elders, as leaders, as shepherds, as overseers of the church, their, their character was to be this. Their focus is not to be on themselves, but on the God they serve and on the people they help. So you look at these two lists and you have kind of the negative side, they should not be like this, and the positive side, they should be like this, and you look at how they're interacting with others, what their motivations are and how they relate. It's not about them, it's about their God and about the others they serve. He says things like they are to love what is good. Again, that's a theme right throughout this book for all believers, that they are to love what is good. These men are to be an example, an example to follow. And so this includes uh, above reproach. It means they have to have a good reputation in the church and out. 
of someone whose character and conduct does not bring the church of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into disrepute. They have to be above reproach. The husband of, of one wife. And again, this is talking about sexual purity and faithfulness, and that kind of thing is the thrust behind that. If we had time this morning, we would kind of unfold that whole package, but we don't have time for that. But here's what they're saying. Men of character, in the way they conduct themselves sexually, in the way they conduct themselves relationally, his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Has he shared the gospel in his home? Has he discipled in his home? An overseer is what God's steward. The church is not his, the church is God's. He has been given a responsibility to steward it, to manage it, to guard it, and shape it well, to guide it well. And so he must be above reproach. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent or greedy for gain, but rather he's to be hospitable. Loving people, a lover of good, a lover of good. Self-controlled, upright, holy, set apart by God, to God, and for God's purposes, and living like it, and disciplined. That's who he's to be. Now, we look at that list and say, whoo, who's this guy supposed to be, perfect? (laughs) No, not perfect, but actually following Christ. We've talked about this before from 1 John chapter 2. You can only be called a follower of Jesus if you're actually following Jesus. And so this is what's being said here. Now, it's not that this guy has to be perfect to lead the church, but it's that his character and his conduct must reflect Christ. And he must be a faithful follower of Jesus. Mark Dever puts it this way. A church should dismiss a pastor or elder... When the nature of his sin causes people to scorn the gospel and prevents him from being held up as a typical follower of Jesus. I'm going to read that again because I want you to hear something, a specific word in there that's there on purpose. A church should dismiss a pastor or elder when the nature of his sin causes people to scorn the gospel and prevents him from being held up as a typical follower of Jesus. You see, Leaders, leaders in the church, are to be examples to the church, not exceptions to the rule. Sometimes we look and say, well, leaders need to be just a cut above. They're the people that are really... No, they're to be the example of simply what it means to follow Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, uh, Paul says this to Timothy. I shared this with a couple of young men this week in ministry. Keep a close watch on yourself, the way you live, and on the teaching, the doctrine you share. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. There is an impact on others by how leaders live and what they teach. But the leaders are simply to be an example, an example to follow. Not someone to say, well, I could never be like that. I guess that's good they're in that position because they, you know, it just doesn't fit. No, they're to lead the way. And so he continues on here, and he says in verse 9, still speaking of an elder, an overseer, he says this, he must hold firm 
to the trustworthy word as taught. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to do two things. Give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The leader is to be able to teach the Word of God faithfully in accordance with sound doctrine and say, this is what the Word says, so this is what we're going to do. But he also must be able to refute error, false teaching. People that contradict the Word, the leader must be able to stand up and say, that is wrong, this is right. Why? Because the hearts and lives of the people who hear are at stake. And so it's as much as feeding them the truth and guarding them from poison. What kind of mother would you be if you fed your family great nutritious meals, but when your kids are playing with the the rat poison out in the barn, you went, oh well, whatever. (laughs) Eat what you want. No. You've got to be able to do both. Present the truth and correct falsehood. James Smart wrote, The mounting ignorance of the contents of the Bible among members of the church constitutes the crisis beneath all other crises that endanger the church's future. The mounting ignorance of the contents of the Bible among members of the church constitutes the crisis beneath all other crises that endanger the church's future. Wow. I would add something to that. I don't believe it's just the ignorance of the Bible's contents. I believe it's also those who are aware of what the Bible says, but fail to obey it. We like the word application today. Why? Because application says, well, I can take it and use it this way or use it that way. That's a poor choice of words. We shouldn't ask how, how I apply the Bible or how does this apply to me. We should ask, this is what God says, how do I obey it? Obedience is a much better word. How do I obey this? In my life, how do I obey what God has just taught me here? Now, James Smart wrote that almost 50 years ago, in 1970. Wow. He wasn't far off, was he? No. You see, we have to be able to teach the truth. Why? Because Paul said that's part of the ministry. We share the gospel. We, we work and serve and, and extend our, our every effort and energy to share the gospel for the faith of the elect that God has called that they would come to faith in Christ. But also, we extend our effort and energy for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. We must teach what the Bible says and how therefore to obey it. And to fall into line so that we are honoring God with our choices and decisions, our behavior, our interactions, our reactions, all those kind of things. That's what we're called to do. And so the elder, the leader, the teacher, the overseer, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he can give instruction in town doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Now, James Smart talked about that crisis that he saw in 1970 that was going to lead to further crises for the church. 
a lack of an understanding of what God says. I added the, the, the extra step of obeying then once we know. There's another crisis in the North American church today, and there are people writing about this, talking about this, struggling with this. A crisis in the North American church today is that if the purpose of the church is indeed, and we believe biblically it is, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, this can only be done by mature disciples of Jesus Christ bringing others along. Make sense? We'll look at this more next week as Paul continues to unfold this in, in the letter. But that makes sense. The only way to make disciples of Jesus Christ is to have mature followers of Christ connecting with others and bringing them along. But if that's the purpose and that's the process of the church, here's one of the crises facing the North American church today. Biblically unqualified men are forcing their way into leadership while biblically qualified men refuse to step up and serve. So churches can't find men who are both qualified and willing. So what happens then? Well, if the qualified won't serve, I guess we'll take the willing. And what are the results? They fail reliably, often catastrophically. Much like duct tape on ductwork. So Paul tells Timothy about the type of men who are to make disciples of Jesus. And he's telling him that on purpose because of the state of the church in which he's going, the church on the island of Crete, all these churches on these towns. It was a mess because of the leadership that was there. And so he's telling Titus, look, at this is what the leader is to be because they can only make disciples of Jesus if they are, in fact, a faithful follower of Jesus themselves. So the result, when you go the other direction, follows. Verse 10. We now see the men who don't make disciples of Jesus, but who are in place in leadership in the church, and they instead make disciples of themselves. Verse 10 says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow. It's not exactly visit beautiful British Columbia on the bumper sticker, is it? Wow. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow! No wonder the churches on Crete were in such a mess. That is who was leading. That can't lead to anything good, can it? How can that lead to making effective disciples of Jesus Christ if this is the character of the men who were leading? He says they're insubordinate. They're rebellious. These are men who refuse correction. 
He says they must be silenced and they must be rebuked sharply. Why? These are men who refuse correction. They defy both direction and discipline. They refuse to recognize the authority of God's word, of God's spirit, and of the leaders that he's put in place. He speaks about those of the, the circumcision party. Those who were coming along to these Gentile believers on the island of Crete and saying, in order to truly be Christians now, you must get in line with all the Jewish ceremonial laws and customs and the Old Testament law. You've got to come back and you've got to kind of become Jewish. Now, our issues today that kind of invade the church in North America that we wrestle with, they might be different than that, and they often are, but there is an element of that even today where there are churches trying to become more Jewish in nature, and you go, wow, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so that's one issue, but there are others too. And so they're coming alongside, they're trying to force believers, followers of Jesus Christ, into these Jewish patterns to follow these Jewish laws. And they're doing that in their teaching at the church, but they're also doing that house to house. They're sitting in homes, and they're teaching this. And they're saying, well, it doesn't matter what the guy said on Sunday morning. Let me tell you, you know, if you're not circumcised, or if you're not following the Jewish dietary laws, or if you're not following this, or if you're not doing that, or why didn't you keep that feast, you're not really a follower of Christ. And they're meeting in homes and they're distracting people and dividing people and deceiving people. Whole families are in uproar, as Paul says, because this is going on. He's clearly been hearing feedback from what's going on on the island of Crete. These people are not making disciples of Christ. They're doing this. They're using their message and their influence for their own gain, to control people, to solidify their position of power, and to put themselves in a position for even financial gain. Well, I could teach you that, but I don't really have time. I'm a busy guy. Maybe if you threw me a few dollars. And they're doing this to put themselves in those positions. They're trying to get people into these ceremonial laws. So why is it that Paul, of all his teammates, why is it he left Titus on Crete to teach and to correct these kinds of things? I think one of the reasons is because Titus was a Greek Gentile. <laughs> Titus, according to Galatians, was one that Paul took with him to Jerusalem to confront this kind of error before. And he held him up and said, this is Titus. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He has repented of his sins. He's turned his back on that. He's surrendered to Jesus. He has new life in Christ. He is our brother in Christ. He is a faithful disciple. He is learning and growing and walking with Jesus. And he is faithful in teaching others. He's effective. There's fruit in his ministry. And he's not circumcised. And he's not following all these laws. And he held him up as an example, saying... We're not called to go back. We're called to move forward as followers of Christ. We're not called to become Jewish. We're called to be followers of Jesus. And Titus was an example of that. And Paul took Titus to Jerusalem as exhibit A for one of those arguments. And Titus is now sent into that setting and saying, you've heard me use that argument before. You've heard me refute that before. Buckle up, Titus. It's your turn. Follow through now and deal with this because that's what's going on. These men are meeting in homes and they're going around and they're distracting and dividing people. They're distressing the life of the church with false teaching. They're claiming it's discipleship. 
But they're not making disciples of Jesus, they're making disciples of themselves. And as we saw in the first section, the men that you are, Titus, to put in places of authority and leadership are to be men who are focused on serving God and helping others. These guys are not worried about serving God and helping others, they're worried about controlling others and exalting themselves. And so that's what they're doing, is they're using this, they're using this to exalt themselves. Their externals, their activities, their words and their actions are revealing their hearts. And in the process, they are so focused on everyone else's externals that they are ignoring their hearts. Totally missing the boat on what discipleship is all about. Paul says, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. They're killing the church. They're taking their own little ideas and their own agendas for their own benefit. And they're distracting people from Jesus. They're dividing the church. Put them to silence. Now, you, you, you read verse 12 here, and we think, boy, Paul, how do you really feel, right? When he's talking about Cretans, <laughs> one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Evil beasts living by unrestrained appetites and instinct. Just driven by that, no thought for what's right and wrong. That's how they're being described? Well, Paul is quoting here Epimenides, who is a respected Greek intellectual from about the 6th century B.C. He was held up as one of the seven wise men in Greek culture. People loved his writing and they listened to him and they took his direction. And Epimenides, you know where he grew up? On Crete. <laughs> He's speaking about his own people. He knows the character. He knows what they are known for. And he said, this is what they're known for. Leonidas, another of the, the Cretans who wrote about his people, said, Cretans are unjust. They are neither peaceable among, among themselves nor patient with those outside. So these, these people are kind of a mess, and that's what they're bringing into the church. And so when you feed that and turn that loose in the life of the church, you've got a problem, he says. So you've got to correct that. Now I wonder if Paul was writing to Titus today, and he had set Titus loose to correct the church in Canada, what would he say about Canadians? That's an interesting question, isn't it? What would he say about Canadians? But you say, well, Canadians are always worried about offending somebody, so they don't take a stand on much. But he said, Canadians are all about their personal, individual freedom and rights. They hate surrendering and submitting to authorities, and they refuse to step up to their responsibilities, but give them rights and freedoms, and they'll be happy. Is that what he would say about Canadians? Is that the kind of thing that would infect the church of Jesus Christ? Wow. Interesting. Well, Paul says these false teachers who are creating division and stirring up trouble, they need to be silenced. In verse 13 he says, rebuke them sharply. Why? Why? So they're on the ground and you're standing there with your foot on their chest and going, okay, I'm in charge now? No. What is the purpose of this? Look at the end of verse 13. That they may be sound in the faith. 
rebuke them sharply and say, you are so far off track, it's just sinful. You're rebelling against God, not helping him. You're making disciples of yourselves, not disciples of Jesus. You need to get back on board and fall in line with Scripture. Come on, brother, repent of that and become sound in the faith. Get back to studying your Bible and just obeying that and teaching others to do the same. And the goal of that rebuke is to bring them back in a corrective way, back into the fold, back into the proper way to go. And in the process, saving them and correcting their own direction, helping and saving those that these men influence by saying, no, we have seen the error of our ways and we're turning back and we need to go here. It's about Jesus, not about me. And bringing those others that you've steered astray and saying, I'm so sorry I led you in the wrong direction. Come back here. That's the goal of the rebuke, is that they might be found sound in the faith. It's about their spiritual health and the health of the church. He says in verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That doesn't mean if you're a follower of Jesus, you can do whatever you want and there's nothing that's really wrong for you. There's people that teach that and it's false according to Scripture. The whole idea here is that if you are pure in heart and mind, then your assessment of things will be correct. Your involvement with things will be correct. Your motivation in things will be correct and be pure. Romans 12.2 says... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By being renewed in your mind, then being transformed in your life by the way you assess things. And again, I think this is a reference back even to the circumcision party. Remember Peter? God had to be very clear with Peter on what was clean and unclean, what was pure and unpure, so that Peter would accept Gentile believers. Remember that? And I think that's part of what Paul's getting at here. But he says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow. Now only God can judge, can judge the heart. Amen? Only God can judge the heart. However, we are, we are called to evaluate what we can evaluate and to judge what we can judge. So don't, don't come and quote that verse after, well, judge not that you be not judged, because you've just ripped that right out of context and you're using it poorly. We are called to judge ourselves so that God doesn't have to come and judge us as individuals and as a church. And so what do we judge? Well, in what these men teach... And in how they live, their hearts are on display. In how they live and in what they teach, their hearts are showing. And we're to judge that. Jesus said that in Matthew 7. Uh, by, by your fruit, you'll know what kind of tree you're dealing with. And he's talking there about false teachers. We need to see what they're teaching and how they're living. You see, they say they know God, but their lives and their teachings say otherwise. It doesn't matter how much somebody claims to know God and to love Jesus and walk with Jesus. If their lives don't line up with the Word and they're teaching false things, they're lying. And so we have to be aware of that. Now these are the conditions into which Titus was sent to lead. Piece of cake, right? These are the conditions in which legitimate elders were trying to shepherd God's people on the island of Crete. 
That's a tough go, isn't it? Aren't you glad we're not on our own? But we have the Spirit of God, the only one who can change hearts and lives. The only one who can equip and encourage and strengthen in the task of making disciples. Aren't you glad? Elders, these leaders that Titus was to appoint on the island of Crete, Paul says, are to be men who make disciples of Jesus, who work for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life. That's what they're to do. They're to be men of character, men who show that they faithfully are disciples of Jesus. Are they perfect? No. Are they growing? Yes. Are they faithful to what we're called to teach and what we're called to live? Yes. Are they able to refute false doctrine? Yes. That's what they're to be. And thirdly, they are to refute error. They're to put it to silence. They're to confront it sharply because the life and the spiritual health of God's people is at stake and that's too big a cost to pay for, oh, well, we kind of like him. Yeah, but he's teaching falsehood. He's teaching lies. He's gathering people to himself instead of to Jesus. doesn't matter how long you've known him. This stops now. That's what the elders are supposed to be doing. So how do we take what Paul told Titus about the leaders in the church, the mission of the church, in Titus chapter 1, We'll finish the rest of the book over the next few weeks, but how do we take what he told them in Titus chapter 1 and kind of follow through and live it out here in Harrow in 2018? Well, I think if we are going to be disciples of Jesus Christ who effectively make more disciples of Jesus, two things I would take from this chapter are these. Number one, be very careful who you listen to, follow, and imitate. In here and out there. So it doesn't matter if you're here in a service or you're here in some kind of program or you're in a home in a Bible study or you're at home on the internet watching a preacher on, on the internet or on TV or whatever it is or what you're reading. It doesn't matter what kind of story you got it from. Be very careful who you listen to, follow, and imitate. One of the things that the Church of Jesus Christ in North America seems to be missing today is discernment. Discernment. Brothers and sisters, we need God-given, spirit-driven discernment today in what we listen to and what we buy into. Who will follow and imitate? We need to compare everything that's taught to the Word of God. If I say anything here that's contrary to Scripture, Scripture wins. Scripture wins. If there's someone out there that's just a master communicator, fantastic, they're funny, they're easy to listen to, it's wonderful, but they're teaching falsehood, they're giving you lies from the pit of hell, turn it off! It's not about hearing a nice communicator. It's about hearing the truth. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? Follow my example as what? I follow Christ. Be very careful. Anyone, anyone can write a book have an internet presence, or preach on TV. And none of those things are found anywhere in Scripture as qualifications for leadership in the church. Be very careful. We need to look at their lives closely. We need to listen to their teaching carefully and be willing to ask the hard questions. We are willing to do that with the Ontario election coming up in a few weeks. 
We're willing to say we have these options before us as in terms of parties and leaders and individual local candidates, and we're willing to say, what's their life like? What are they really saying? And what seems to be the lesser of all the evils before us? And, you know, we have those, we're willing to make those decisions and have those hard conversations and ask hard questions about political candidates in Ontario? Really? But we're not when it comes to the kingdom of God? Oh, look carefully, listen closely, and ask the hard questions. Be careful who you listen to, follow, and imitate. And secondly, always remember this, and this is key to understanding the book of Titus as we go through and as we get to chapter 2 next week. Leaders in the church, leaders in the church are to be examples to follow, setting the pattern and direction of following Jesus, not exceptions to the rule, some rare spiritual overachiever. No. We're just supposed to be the, the, the typical follower of Jesus. This is what it's like to walk with Jesus. Come on, let's go. Setting an example along the way. So let's walk carefully. Let's follow Jesus closely. Here in leadership, oh, let's lead well and carefully. And may God, may God grant us discernment and use us effectively to be disciples of Jesus who make more disciples of Jesus at home and here in our ministry together. Why? Because we're servants of God and ambassadors for Christ. And so the mission is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life. Are you in? Let's sing together.